0: Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 30, uh, a subject that that when you raise it almost immediately causes anxiety to go up. Uh, It's almost like uh, throwing out to a congregation the word uh, antichrist uh, or the phrase false prophet or great tribulation or lake of fire. Coming right alongside of those words and phrases that would cause spiritual anxiety to anyone who is spiritually sensitive uh, is the phrase, the unpardonable sin. Uh, Throughout my ministry, I have been asked about it over and over and over and over. And so tonight it is uh, my goal to walk through uh, Mark chapter 3 verses 22 through 30 ...and allow uh, the Lord Jesus to speak to us directly concerning this perhaps most serious of all sins that are mentioned uh, in the Bible. All sin is serious, but this particular sin stands out uh, as we will see this evening. So in Mark chapter 3, verse 22, the word of the Lord says, "...and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub." and By the prince of demons he cast out the demons, and he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand, and if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand, and if Satan has arisen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. You hear the phrase, unpardonable sin, but interestingly, the phrase actually never occurs in the Bible. What we see in this text, it is called a sin that is not forgivable, and it is said to be, in verse 29, an eternal sin. In other words, whatever this unforgivable sin, whatever this unpardonable sin, whatever this eternal sin is, it immediately consigns one's eternal destiny to what Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 through 15 call the lake of fire. And so regardless of what you call it, it does not lessen the terror does not lessen the severity of what Jesus is talking about. Now, when we consider this thing called the unpardonable sin, a number of questions naturally arise in most people's minds, especially those who are spiritually sensitive. Number one, is there really an unforgivable and unpardonable sin? Two, if there is, then what exactly is it? And perhaps the question that I've been asked more than any other in relationship to this particular sin, can a Christian commit the unpardonable sin? Now, as we prepare to look at this issue tonight, one thing is certain. Sin is serious. And we should approach all sin with great gravity. We should approach all sin with great seriousness. And yet there is a sin here that the Bible says once that sin is committed, you will never Ever experience forgiveness There's no one you can turn to There's no one you can look to for help There's no longer any hope for heaven And eternal life Because you see God is the one who pronounces this judgment On this thing called the unforgivable sin And when God says never He really means never His judicial verdict stands And it will never be struck down His death sentence is just as certain and sure as his life-giving pardon. John Piper comments well on this particular issue when he says, if forgiveness is withheld for eternity, guilt is sealed for eternity. God is never neutral to sin. He either forgives it or punishes it. Not to be forgiven by God forever is to suffer his wrath forever. Now, it's interesting the context in which we find the discussion of the unforgivable, the unpardonable sin. Uh, First of all, if you just go back to the previous two verses, verse 20 and 21, you see that Jesus uh, has uh, experienced the rejection of his family. In fact, his mother and his brothers have come down and they have tried to take him back home. In fact, they said in verse 21, he's crazy. Uh, He is out of his mind. And then coming on the heels of this rejection by his family, we now have this official delegation coming from Jerusalem that are assigned to investigate the young Jewish rabbi who is causing so much difficulty and causing such a stir. And so in the midst of the rejection of his family and in the midst of this harsh, critical evaluation of the religious elite of his day, this is the context in which we find the discussion of the un pardonable sin now again before we move to the text if anything should be true tonight you should understand this God takes sin with deadly seriousness it is not something that he winks at It is not something that he simply uh shoves aside with no forethought just last week I was informed of a dear friend who once babysat our boys who was my student here and at southern seminary I was made aware of the fact that he, as a pastor, has been engaged in an affair for more than a year. He has walked away from his wife. He has walked away from his children. He is also in the process of destroying another home. And he looked at the elders when confronted and said, I know that this is wrong. I know that this is sin, but God will forgive me. Be very careful to presume upon God like that. It is true that God forgives all sin when it comes from a truly repentant heart. But for someone to treat sin so frivolously, I believe, is to run the risk of committing sin that God will not forgive. And clearly there is such sin as this text makes crystal clear. So when we look at the text... And we consider this issue of the unpardonable sin. What is it that we can say about it in terms of biblical observations? And then at the end of the message, I'm going to bring together a number of theological uh, truths for us to consider. So number one, the unpardonable sin, it reveals a hardened heart that calls good evil. Verse 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub. And by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. Jesus is in the process of preaching. He's in the process of healing. He is casting out demons. He's almost doing it virtually around the clock. And so the crowds are growing daily. And in fact, they're growing so large, he has no privacy. He doesn't even have time, as we saw previously, to get aside and even eat a meal. And so his family shows up, concerned that he's not taking care of himself, and they want to take him back home. Uh, they fear that he's losing it. And now on top of that, here comes the religious aristocracy from Jerusalem. Uh, this is not unusual. The Sanhedrin uh, had their religious theological watchdogs. And it was not uncommon for them to send them out to engage prophets or teachers out in the nation of Israel to investigate them and to pass judgment as to whether or not what they were doing was acceptable or unacceptable. In fact, William Lane in his wonderful commentary on Mark says their assignment was, quote, to distinguish between the instigators, the apostates, and the innocent. And so they were there to interview Jesus and to check him out and to listen to what he says. And it seems that they drew a very quick uh, conclusion. It did not take them long to pass judgment and to render a verdict concerning Jesus. They were saying he is possessed by Beelzebub and by the prince of demons. He cast out demons. In other words, they were quick to judge. He is a demon motivated apostate. He is a false prophet, a false teacher, and he needs to be shut down immediately. Now, that phrase that you see there in verse 22, or that word there, Beelzebub, uh, engendered a lot of discussion and a lot of interest. Uh, etymologically, or at least in its initial stage, uh, the word may have been something like Lord of the flies. Uh, that is what some commentators have noted. Others have said, well, it then has with it the idea of the Lord of carrion, i.e., i.e. he is the Lord over that which is dead and being eaten away by worms and flies and so on. Uh, but ultimately, the word moved past the idea of him being the Lord of the dung heap. Uh, that would not have been uh, a phrase that you would naturally uh, be attracted to. And so most likely, by the time in which it appears here, uh, it means something like the Lord of the house. Uh, some of you have said it means Baal, that, that pagan god in Old Testament history, Baal the prince. Or, if you like, ruler uh, of a house or ruler of a dynasty of demons. And basically, the text tells you what it means. He is casting out demons by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is casting out the demons. So to call Jesus Beelzebub is to say that he is in, uh, uh, cahoots and he is aligning himself with the prince of the demonic world, which of course would be no one other than Satan. So how does he, uh, heal? Uh, How does he do these miraculous things? Well, he does so by the power and the control of the prince or the ruler of the the, the demonic world. It is also interesting to note, in all of Jewish literature, this is the only time that we find Satan being associated by name with Beelzebub. But whatever that word meant in that particular historical context, it is teaching that they believed and they were saying that what he does in healing, what he does in casting out demons, what good he does, he's actually doing by the power of Satan. So think about where Jesus is in his ministry at this particular moment. On the one hand, his family says he's deranged. And on the other hand, the religious leaders of the land, of the nation, say he is demonically possessed and motivated. Now, as we begin to unwrap this idea of what exactly is the unpardonable sin, there's a very helpful observation that we can make right here, and that is this. When you see the phrase in verse 22, they were saying. And when you look down at verse 30 and you see the same phrase again, for they were were saying you need to understand that that uh, verb tense is a continuous one it's actually what is called the imperfect tense in the greek new testament but the idea that we need to take away tonight is it speaks of continuous action in other words they were continually saying this in other words those who commit the unpardonable sin do not do so by saying something stupid are foolish, are theologically uh, uh, inaccurate at one time. In other words, they weren't making a one-time accusation. Uh, this is not a, a, an unfortunate. I've had some people say to me, well, I, maybe, I, maybe I committed uh, the unpardonable sin and I didn't know it. It, it was a slip-up and I was not aware that I had done so. I can assure you, if that's what you're worried about, you haven't done it. This was not a slip of the tongue. Uh, This was not a verbal faux pas. This was not something that they did once. It is something they said over and over and over and over and over again. It is a hardened heart that continually calls that which is good evil. Indeed, Herman Babnick said of this sin, it is a sin against the gospel in its clearest revelation. They call the supremely good one the supremely evil evil one. And it is a persistent rejection of and declaration against what the spirit of God is doing in and through the life of Jesus. In other words, those who commit this sin do so with unmistakable and undeniable evidence that he is the son of God. That he is doing what he does, not by the power of the evil one, but doing so by the power of the evil one. In other words, we can say it in four ways. Number one, they are aware of the miraculous works of Jesus that cannot be denied. Do you notice that they do not deny the miracles? They couldn't. There was too much evidence to the contrary. So, not denying the miracles, they ascribe the power of the miracles, not to God, but to Satan. Secondly, they consistently reject the obvious and logical conclusion that these spiritual works are done by the Spirit of God. Number three, they declare, now stay with me, they declare verbally and consistently those works are actually from Satan. And then number four, they consistently tell others. That the works of Jesus are the works of Satan. And when you put all that together, you have the clear evidence of a hardened heart that calls evil good. And the Bible says if you start down that road, be very careful. Because there may be no return just around the corner. Number two, the unpardonable sin. It reveals spiritual blindness that is willful and Intentional Jesus responds to their outlandish charges and he calls in particular the religious elite to come near him uh, to hear a parable in fact it says there in verse 23 and he called them to him and he said to them in parables and so Jesus is going to respond to their accusation. He is going to refute it as well as reveal the logical absurdity of their logic and what they're saying. Now, in essence... He really just uses one illustration, but it actually is comprised of two components. He is, first of all, going to talk about a kingdom that is divided. That's verse 23 and 24. And then secondly, he's going to talk about a house that gets plundered, and that's verse 25 through verse 27. So first of all, he speaks of a kingdom that is divided. He makes a very simple, basic observation in verse 23. How can Satan cast Out Satan. Or to say it another way. Would Satan oppose himself? Would Satan act against himself? Would Satan actually try to defeat Satan? And there's one thing that's certain. Satan is in the process right now of building and attempting to construct a great kingdom. And Jesus has come not to help Satan build his kingdom. But rather, he has come to destroy that kingdom. But if Satan were fighting against himself, he would be powerless to do anything. And obviously, uh, that's not the case. There are a lot of people that in this particular day and time were suffering from demon possession. There were a lot of people that were suffering from disease. There were still, as there is today, people dying. It seems that uh, there's a lot of evil going on. And so it seems that Satan is actually alive and well. And so if he were to oppose himself, if Jesus were actually casting out demons by the power of the demons, Satan would be refuting uh, and destroying and uh, opposing himself. Would Satan try to do himself in? No. That's absurd. It's inconceivable. Would he empower someone else to try to wipe out? Here's how it is. Would he empower somebody else to try to wipe out his own army? And again, the answer is No. David Garland, who teaches New Testament at Baylor University, I think gets it exactly right when he says, quote, Satan extends his kingdom by sowing chaos and by enslaving humans, not by setting them free. And to not see this reveals a spiritual blindness that is both willful and it is intentional. It's like many people in the church. My mind is made up. Don't you confuse me with the facts. I run into people like that all the time. My mind is made up. Don't you try to confuse me with the facts that might force me to make a different kind of decision. So he first of all talks about a kingdom divided. Then secondly, in verses 25 through 27, he talks about a house that is plundered. He he changes the analogy, but the argument follows in the same vein. Look at it with me. Verse 25, and if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is coming to an end. Uh, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Jesus begins in verse 25 with a very simple observation. A house divided cannot stand. Now, just pick the context. It doesn't matter to me. Marriage, family, family. Business, sports, church, doesn't matter. If it's divided, when it comes to its goals and purposes, it will fail and destroy itself. That's why when I do premarital counseling, I try to make sure that the couple is of one mind on the major issues of life. They're of one mind as to uh, how many children, do they want to have children, how many will they have? Uh, they are of one mind that when the kids show up, what will, what will the mother do? Will she be a stay-at-home mom or, or do they wish to still try to function with a double income and place the child uh, in child care? Uh, how will they indeed manage their finances and how will they maintain accountability in that area? When uh, uh, strife comes, when arguments come, when fights come, how will they negotiate those things? Because if they are not of one mind, then they will have a house divided. Their marriage will be a mess. Their family will be a mess. Put that in the business world. That business will falter and find itself in bankruptcy. And then again, move it into the church. It is not by accident that the church at Corinth was having all sorts of problems. Why? Because in many ways, they were a house divided, as some were saying, well, I'm a Paul, I'm a Peter, I'm of Apollos. And then the spiritual party said, well, I follow Jesus, which probably just meant they were the most arrogant of all of them. So, the fact of the matter is, if there is division within a house, that house is not going to stand. It will destroy itself. He carries on the argument. Verse 26 If, if Satan fights himself, he will fall and his doom is sealed. And then in verse 27, he uses this parable uh, that really kind of seals the argument as he applies to himself. The plunderer, which we don't naturally or initially think of Jesus in that way, but think in terms of a of a commanding general who's bringing his army into foreign uh, territory that has been unlawfully occupied. So he is the plunderer and Satan is the strong man that he mentions here that he is going to plunder and destroy. In other words. In the day in which we live, in the world in which we live, it is appropriate to refer to Satan as a a strong man. Uh, He does have a house. As one man said, he has a house of horrors, filled with sin and sickness and death and demon possession. It is filled with all that is evil and all that is wicked. In particular, he has in his house uh, some very special possessions called human beings, and these human beings, he has enslaved and he has taken captive and he uses as his agents of evil, uh, his demonic and diabolical agenda, these things called demons. And so this strong house is uh, occupied and led by a strong man, a strong man so mighty that none of us could dare take him down. In fact, there's only one who can take him down and his name is Jesus. And so Jesus leaves heaven, comes into this world as this great conqueror who will indeed bind the strong man. And I like the way that uh, Eugene Peterson said it. He says, once he is bound, he can clean him out. And that is what Jesus began doing with his public ministry. And that's what he will do climatically by his death on the cross. First John 3, 8 makes it very clear. The Son of God has come into this world to destroy the works of the devil. So if you deny that, if you reject that or oppose that, the Bible says it is an evidence of your spiritual blindness that is both intentional and willful. It is that mind that says, don't confuse me with the facts. My mind is already made up. So first of all, the unpardonable sin reveals a hardened heart that verbally calls good evil. Secondly, it reveals a spiritual blindness that is both willful and intentional. You know what you're doing. And then number three, it involves a verbal declaration that is continual and unforgivable. Verse 28 Jesus moves to conclude the matter, and he begins with a word that has not yet appeared in Mark's gospel, but is a word filled with significance. It is a word that is used in a compound kind of a way in the gospel of John, verse 28. Truly, I say to you. The word truly there is a translation of the Greek word from which we read our word, amen, amen. It's a word that occurs 12 times in Mark's gospel. Now, stay with me. It's very fascinating. This word, amen, is only found in the gospels, never found in Acts through Revelation, not one time. It is also a word that is only found on the lips of Jesus. And regardless of how you look at the historicity of the Old Testament, it is almost certain that Jesus is the unique originator of this phrase because we never find the word on the lips of any teacher, even outside the Bible, in all of ancient Jewish literature. It is a word that, if you put it in the mouth of one of us, sounds really stupid because it is a word that says, What I say, you can take to the bank every time. What I say has behind it divine authority. It is the most serious and the most solemn affirmation that adds incredible strength to what Jesus says. Again, William Lane says he has introduced by the use of this word a completely new manner of speaking. In other words, his words are true. His words are completely and uniquely reliable because they come from one who is himself the very witness of God. Now, Jesus begins as he concludes the matter on a positive note. Look at what it says there in verse 28. Truly, I I say to you, all sins will be, the ideas can be forgiven the children of man, the children of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. In other words, he begins by pointing out that God is a God of graciousness, a God of mercy, a God who delights in forgiving sins. So all sins will be, can be forgiven. Even literally, here's what it says in the Greek text, the blasphemies, whatever, they may blaspheme. So all sins, all sinners can find the forgiveness of God if they come to Him in repentance and in belief. There is one tragic exception. That he notes in verse 29 and verse 30. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. He is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were continually saying he has an unclean spirit. Speak against the Holy Spirit as he works in the life of Jesus verbally, continually, willfully, with malicious intent that reveals a hardened heart beyond the possibility of repentance. And there is number one, no forgiveness. And number two, you are guilty of what the Bible calls an eternal sin. I've mentioned him several times tonight. William Lane, for many years, taught New Testament at Western Kentucky University. He wrote, I think to this day still, uh, the finest commentary that's ever been written on the gospel of Mark. He's now in heaven, but his book has outlived him by many, many years. And when it comes to this particular issue, I just don't think I can improve upon the kind of analysis that he gives. And so listen very carefully as I cite this wonderful New Testament scholar for our benefit. Here's what he says, and I quote, Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit forever removes a man beyond the sphere where forgiveness is possible. This solemn warning, it must be interpreted in the light of the specific situation in which it was uttered. I'm going to make comments along the way. Lane would not say that this sin could not be committed today. There are some New Testament scholars who believe that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit could only take place when Jesus was walking the earth. And I understand why they make that argument. Lane, I think, would say it is possible to be committed today, but it was more likely to be committed then. And that I would agree with. Do I think it more likely... That it would be committed when Jesus was walking on the earth, you saw him in flesh and blood doing all the things that he was doing. Yes, I do think it was more likely to happen then, but that does not rule out the fact that it could also happen today. He continues, blasphemy was an expression of defiant hostility toward God, the profaning of his name. This is the danger to which the scribes exposed themselves when they attributed to the agency of Satan the redemption brought by Jesus. The expulsion of demons was a sign of the intrusion of the kingdom of God. Yet the scribal accusations against Jesus amount to a denial of the power and the greatness of the Spirit of God. By assigning the action of God to a demonic origin, The scribes betray a perversion of spirit, which is in defiance of the truth, choosing to call light darkness. In this historical context, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit denotes the conscious and the deliberate rejection of the saving power and grace of God realized through Jesus' word and act. The failure of the scribes to recognize him as the bearer of the spirit and the conqueror of Satan, that could be forgiven. The considered judgment that his power was demonic, however, betrayed a defiant resistance to the Holy Spirit. This severe warning, now listen, David, you and I have to listen to this next statement. This severe warning was not addressed to laymen, but to carefully trained religious specialist whose task was to interpret the biblical law to the people. In the margin of my notes that you don't have, I have written out beside it the phrase, the sin of the scholars. Now, again, let me be clear. Do I think only scholars can commit this sin? No. Do I think it more likely that it is theological and biblical scholars who do commit this sin? Yes. Those who study the Word and for whatever reason begin to deny its truth, begin to reinterpret who Christ really is, Begin then to lead others astray by continually and willfully and intentionally and verbally attributing to him that which is not of God. Yes, I think they are more likely the ones to commit that sin, but that should not give any of you uh, the, uh, the freedom to think that you would receive a pass simply because you're not a, quote, uh, Ph.D. scholar in the area of religion. He goes on. It was the religious leader's responsibility to be aware of God's redemptive action. Their insensitivity to the spirit through whom Jesus was qualified for his mission exposed them to grave peril. Their own tradition condemned their gross callousness as sharply as the words of Jesus. The admonition concerning blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not to be divorced from the historical context and applied generally. Mark emphasizes this by terminating the incident With a reference to the specific accusation that Jesus was possessed by an unclean spirit, repetition and a fixed attitude of mind. That's a great way of saying it. Repetition and a fixed attitude of mind brought these scribes to the brink of the unforgivable blasphemy. So in conclusion, what is the unpardonable sin? The sin that can never be forgiven. The sin that is an eternal sin. You see there are a number of observations following a definition in your notes. It is to knowingly, willingly, persistently attribute the works of God done by and in Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit who testifies to these truths in your heart. You ascribe all of that to Satan. You know what you're doing you continually do it, and you do it verbally. So, seven quick uh, observations that we can make here. Number one, it is a sin of full knowledge and understanding. You know what you're doing. So if you're here tonight and you just, you're just you one well, I'm just not sure, I can assure you, you haven't. Number two, it is a persistent and ongoing disposition of the heart that resists the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Three, it is a verbal act of the mouth which attributes the works of the Holy Spirit to Satan. Number four, it is a willful rejection of God's grace and goodness in Jesus. Number five, it is rooted in unbelief. Now, if I I were taking notes, I'd put a little star by that. Some people, I think, erroneously sometimes say, well, the unpardonable sin is unbelief. That is not accurate. The unpardonable sin consists of unbelief, but it's more than that. Now, it is true. You die in unbelief and you will die without forgiveness. You will die and go to hell. You will die and live forever separate from God. But that's not the same thing as the unpardonable sin. But it is true that at its very root, the unpardonable sin is grounded in unbelief. Number six, it is a sin a Christian cannot commit. You say, well, Danny, one time when I was not walking with the Lord, I got angry and I used the Lord's name in vain. That's not the unpardonable sin. That's not the unpardonable sin. It is sin. Uh, It is serious sin. It is sin for which God will deal with you if you do not repent and confess and ask for forgiveness. But it is not the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin can only be committed by an unbeliever. It cannot be committed by a Christian. Thus, number seven. It is a sin not committed by one who fears and is concerned they may have committed it. But for those of us who I pray, all of us who are here tonight, who know Christ, though we are not guilty of this sin, though by God's grace we cannot commit this sin, it should be a solemn reminder to all of us that God takes sin very quickly very, very seriously. In fact, I conclude by reading from Mark's Gospel later, chapter 9, verse 42 through 48. Listen, and we'll be dismissed. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled, quenched sin is very serious to god and therefore sin ought to be very serious to us the unpardonable sin if it does anything for you and me it should drive us to run to jesus and stay with jesus rejoicing and embracing the free and full forgiveness that he makes possible through his death his burial and his wonderful and glorious resurrection let's pray together father Uh, This is a sin that, um, I praise your name, I cannot commit. And yet, Lord, I suspect that there are times in my life where I have sinned in such an egregious way that uh, it has broken your heart and that I have at least moved in the direction of the land where where this sin resides. And so, Lord, I understand tonight I need to be careful with what I say. I need to be careful how I think. And I need to be very careful how I allow my my mind, my thoughts, and my emotions to impact my will. Lord, I want to be willful and intentional in loving and serving you. I want to be uh, verbal and consistent in praising your name. So, Lord, since we have the assurance that we cannot commit the unpardonable sin, may we then, in reverse, be just effusive in our praise of you, taking all these negative aspects of this sin and turning them into a positive, that we might speak well of you, think well of you, and intentionally and willfully glorify you for who you are and what you've done. And, Lord, keep us from ever being pharisees and passing judgment on others saying well i i know that fellow right there he he, he's probably guilty of the unpardonable sin number one we don't know that we don't know that and therefore number two for us to say that would be prideful and arrogant and sinful lord you saved many a person that i thought was beyond the hope of salvation in fact there's one speaking tonight who was in that very situation. So, Lord, help us to rejoice in your amazing grace and help us, Lord, to warn all of the dangers and the seriousness and the finality of dying in one sin apart from Jesus. This we ask and pray in his name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary.